Well, kids, you are dismissed to your classrooms. Have a wonderful time in kids' church. And as our munchkins head out, I would encourage each of you to find your Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth, which is in the Old Testament, somewhat towards the middle, eighth book in. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 19 is where we're going to start today. And we're going to read six verses. We are returning to our journey through this Old Testament story of Ruth. And today we're going to finish our chapter. But before we read, I'm going to kind of recap our story so far. Hopefully this is going to start to sound familiar to you. We have a wealthy family from Bethlehem who flees the promised land in the midst of a famine. They seek relief in the nearby country of Moab. It is a pagan land. But in Moab, things actually end up taking a tragic turn for our refugees. The patriarch of this family, Elimelech, dies, as do his two sons. And left behind are three widows, Elimelech's wife, Naomi, and Elimelech's boys, Moabite wives, two women named Orpah and Ruth. And in the passage we looked at last week, the famine breaks and there's again bread to be had in Israel. So Naomi, Elimelech's widow, makes preparations to go home and her daughter-in-laws are now faced with a choice. The deaths of their husband have technically severed their obligations to their mother-in-law, yet these girls had clung to Naomi in the midst of her mourning. They had cared for her as she grieved, but with her packing up to go home to Judah, they have to decide if they will go with her. Will they themselves become strangers in a foreign land? And Naomi wants to protect them, so she kind of initiates a family breakup. She loves them to too much to watch them tie their boats to her sinking ship. She's desperate, she's powerless, and she realizes that as a poor widow, she has no capability to help them secure a fresh start. And they're still young and vibrant. They're probably late 20s at this point. They can easily find husbands among the Moabites, which is that path to security in kind of their culture. And if they left with Naomi, it would mean just scraping by, dependent on an adopted country's charity towards them. And Naomi, she knows that life. She wouldn't wish it upon her girl, so she sends them away with a blessing. And we read this last week. She says, go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. May he show you chesed, his extraordinary loyalty and his gracious devotion as you have shown chesed as you've dealt kindly with the dead and with me the lord grant that you may find rest each of you in the house of a new husband and as we explored last week one of the daughters-in-law orpah she does the sensible and expected thing she She goes home to start a new life among her people. But Ruth does what is extraordinary and unexpected. She clings to Naomi. She makes a lifelong commitment to her mother-in-law and to her mother-in-law's God. She vows to be her daughter always. 
She says, my future, though it will be precarious and uncertain, will be by your side in the land of Israel. It's an amazing act of of love, of self-sacrifice, of conversion that is worth marveling at. Yet now the story presses forward and these two women make the long trek back to Bethlehem. And here's what we read starting in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? So it's been over a decade, and Naomi finally returns to her hometown, and the whole town starts buzzing with this happy, animated chatter. Could this really be Naomi? Is she back? Is her long, hard exile over? I don't know about you, but when I go home to my hometown, Petaluma in the San Francisco Bay Area, nobody cheers. (laughs) There's no breaking news alerts about my triumphant return. There's no joyful chatter in the coffee shops. But I am not Naomi, apparently. Naomi is a mini Bethlehem celebrity. She's she's near royalty. She's this long-lost but favored daughter who's finally come home. And Bethlehem is celebrating her arrival and her restoration But Naomi will instantly smother that party-like atmosphere. She kills the vibe with this abrasive monologue. And apparently she is not shy about stepping into the spotlight. Because she says, Naomi said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very badly. Bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, which means loveliness, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter in law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now it would be easier for me if we could read Naomi as kind of a mopey sad sack or some grumpy curmudgeon. But I actually think that would be reading her wrong. She's not presented in this story as someone that you would hate to be around. Instead, she seems that she's magnetic She's the type of person that evokes affection and loyalty from all who meet her. Don't forget, this is a mother-in-law who is beloved by her son's wives of a different culture. A woman who is literally cheered as she returns to her hometown. She isn't a woe-is-me kind of angry soul. She's more like my abuelita, She's mischievous, and she's a strong-spoken old woman. And I think my fondness for this story is such because I can't read Naomi without seeing my grandmother in her. Don't mistake who Naomi is. She is a woman who loves fiercely, whose faith runs deep. 
Apparently in her personality is this flair for the dramatic. There's this kind of playful troublemaker's twinkle in her eye. As we'll see, she likes to ruffle feathers, to, to mildly scandalize. She's raw, she's honest, she's entirely comfortable in her own skin. Authenticity just oozes from her. Now, circumstances may have left her battered, but they have not extinguished her spark. And she's going to tell her hometown how she actually is. What are you celebrating, she says. Your beloved Naomi was lost in Moab. That name means loveliness, but to call anything about my life lovely is just a cruel joke. No, call me by a name that is more appropriate with my situation. Call me Lady Mara, Lady Bitterness, because that has been my story. God Almighty, the one who rules and runs the universe, saw to that. He has made it so. So don't party saying Naomi is home. Naomi didn't come home. She died in Moab. And Mara, a bitter old woman, has come home in her stead. I imagine a hush just kind of falls over the crowd as she kind of drops the mic and walks off. Like I said, I think she likes to get a rise out of people, to say how it is without all the fluff and the pleasantries. So what do we do with her emotional speech? Should we be scandalized by her blasphemy? Should we condemn her for this harsh public outburst? I actually take the opposite lesson. Naomi offers us a model of utter honesty with God. I think this is my first takeaway from this text. Naomi has something to teach us. She teaches us that a real relationship is built through honest dialogue and a raw authenticity. Naomi's not doubting Yahweh's existence. She's not denying his status as the one true God. She's still a woman of deep faith who knows a thing, a thing or two about her Lord. Remember, she's the same woman that sends Ruth and Orpah back to Moab saying, you know what? I know your land is a land of gods that are not gods. But I can send you to a godless country because I trust that my God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, can care for you there. He's a God who honors loyalty. He's a God who loves to reward those who embody his own relentless love. She's not denying her God here, but she is hopping mad. Remember in verse 13, she said, Indeed, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And here in 21, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. She's kind of saying, back up, people. The Lord has some issue, some beef with me, so step away. Don't get caught up in the collateral damage that is the firestorm of destruction that surrounds me. And here I think there's a biblical scholar that I've been reading as we've made this journey through Ruth. His name is Robert Hubbard. 
not L. Ron Hubbard, Robert Hubbard. I want to make sure that we get that clear. So I saw people have been seeing Hubbard and they're like, huh? If you don't know who L. Ron Hubbard is, don't worry, don't Google. <laughs> but uh, this Hubbard offers a little bit of interesting commentary. He says, Naomi's words point to the mystery, to the mysterious and often, from a human perspective, unjust workings of God. But one must realize that Naomi's outburst, in fact, assumes a positive view of God. Namely, that he controls the universe normally with justice. Her case is an exception, though not a rare one, but such is the mystery of God. She is still believing that God is in control. She trusts that her plight has not slipped God's notice, but that's why she's frustrated. She feels like she's already been found guilty and is being punished for something, but for what she does not know. She says, God, you're in control, so I can only assume that you've stood up and you've testified against me. And you're going to get a piece of my mind, Lord, because I feel like you're unloading upon me unjustly. Naomi's honesty, it it reveals something interesting. And it's this, as we wrestle things out with God, often it exposes the narratives under which we are living our lives, whether those narratives are true or false. You see, Naomi has let her circumstances speak into her identity. She's letting her fate define who she is. She's allowed her experience is to speak these various stories over her life, and then she's chosen to live within the contours of those skewed stories. So what narratives is she living under? I can see five here. First, she says this, God is against me. He has brought calamity to my door. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with agreeing with her there. We live in a sin-sick world that has been vandalized by evil. And sure, you could say that God ultimately allows every ugly thing that happens. He didn't stop it from happening. But I can't blame him for all of that. We live and we broke this world and our rebellious decisions and the rebellious decisions of others have consequences for both ourselves and for other people. But even now, God is in the process of healing and redeeming. So her first narrative is God is against me. He's the one that brings calamity. The second kind of story that she's living under is this. I am a sinking ship. I am doomed. But let me tell you, just because you've hit rock bottom does not mean your story is over. And it doesn't mean that you're going to stay there. Our God is a God of rescue. A God who brings life out of death, who brings beauty out of ashes. So that is a false narrative. Her third narrative is, the Lord has brought me back empty. Naomi's loss was real, but she is not empty. She's back in the land. There's again food that is plentiful, 
And what's more, she has Ruth by her side. I can only imagine how Ruth feels in this moment when she hears this little monologue. She must feel invisible. Oh, you're empty? (laughs) Oh, lady, am I chopped liver? I have committed myself to you and you are ignoring me like I'm a little puppy dog who's following after your steps. You are not empty. And then she says, I am Mara. Bitterness is my experience, my identity, my destiny. Naomi claims a name for herself that is at odds with the identity that God has spoken over her. To God, Naomi's circumstances do not define her, nor does her present experience speak to the inner character of her heart and her soul. No, God, through Naomi's parents, had given her the name loveliness. That is who she is on the inside. That will be her ultimate destiny. If there is one true story that Naomi is telling about God, and as I've said before, her her bitter complaint kind of cloaks this firm faith because she believes that my God is an active and attentive God. He is a God of justice. He's one who rewards those who demonstrate his kindness and his character out in the world and that he is always at work even when he does not appear to be. By holding God responsible for her losses, she's acknowledging his participation in the events of her life. And things are out of control, but she knows that God is not distant. She says, if God is in control, that also means I can believe that he's able to straighten out things that have gone wonky in my life. So with this raw authenticity, she's, she's laid it all out there in conversation with God, and it's allowed her to bring to him her unvarnished emotions. It's allowed her to put into words the stories that she's living under, things that she maybe has never even given voice to before. And these are the sort of conversations that God wants us to have with him. He will not be scandalized by our honesty. He can handle it. But it's not just about venting and screaming at the heavens. A real conversation allows us as well as God to speak. And while God might not speak audibly with words, he is certainly not silent. How's God been speaking so far in this story? We heard of God's activity when he broke the famine. The Lord visited his people and he's given them food, the narrator says. And even though Naomi feels like God has brought her back empty, we hear a different testimony here in 22. Because she's returning with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her by her side. She's not alone. God is moving to bring redemption to bring life from death. And they know, though Naomi is rightly upset, and though she doesn't understand why she's had to suffer how she did, 
Her God has not abandoned her. He's still in the business of rescue, and even now he is working in ways unseen. And I think Naomi's story actually offers us a second takeaway as well. It invites us to cultivate trust rather than clarity in our journeys with God. Hear that one more time. Cultivate trust rather than clarity in our journeys with God. One of my favorite stories, uh, I don't know, I have a thing for tiny fiery old women because of my grandmother. So I, not, don't get weird. But, uh, so I'm a big fan of Mother Teresa as well. And there's this story about a man. I believe he was a doctor who was once going through this season of just kind of tumult and transition. He was battered by life a bit and he was seeking, he was seeking earnestly from God, what do I do next? So he took a break kind of like Claire, and he he took a six-week trip to Calcutta, India to work for a brief time with Mother Teresa and her missionaries of charity. And he was going there in search of understanding. So shortly after he arrives, he has a chance to meet Mama T. That's what I call her. And she asked him if there's anything that she could do for him. And he says, yes, can you pray for me? Specifically, can you pray for clarity. She looks right back at him and she refuses. (laughs) She says, no, I will not pray that you have clarity. Clarity is the last thing you are clinging to and must let go of. I have never had clarity. What I have always had is trust. So that is what I will pray for. I will pray that you trust God. Naomi wanted clarity. She'd been honest with God. She wanted to know why God had allowed her to suffer as she did. She blamed him. She could see no point or benefit coming out of her pain. And God didn't explain to her why he had not intervened, why he had not sheltered her from the trauma of our broken world. But what he was doing was giving her an assurance of his presence. He had broken the famine. He was drawing alongside of her in the person of Ruth. And he was there in the bitterness of her experience. And he would never leave her or forsake her, even if it looked like the very bottom was falling out of her life. He was inviting her to trust him. And this kind of speaks to me as a parent. I've been reading about what human development specialists call desirable difficulties. We're a family that likes escape rooms. We like complex puzzles. It seems that most of my kids like math. But occasionally, my kids will struggle with a particularly different, difficult question on their their math homework, and they'll go frustrated when an answer doesn't immediately materialize, when the way to arrive at a solution doesn't instantly become apparent. And in that moment, as dad, I want to swoop in with my sage insight and perspective and give them the clarity that they will need to help understand how they can solve 
the problem. But what I'm learning is that if I do that, I am doing my kids a disservice. It is better for their long-term development if they grapple, if they meander about, if they strive in that confusion to find the answer. Now, as a parent, it feels awful. I feel useless. I can't be the hero, which is what I like to be for my kids. But my flesh says, I, you know what? I want my kids to have clarity. I want them to, as quickly as they can, resolve their issues and reach understanding. But I'm learning that it is the struggle that will equip them later in life to find solutions to problems that are far more complex and unpredictable than math. And if I refuse to spoon-feed them perspective and answers, my, my kids will be trained to marshal their own inner resources, and more importantly, they'll learn how to lean upon and trust and depend upon God themselves. Struggle and strain is important, even though it is miserable in the short term. And desirable difficulties initially will cause our performance to suffer. They will increase our frustration. If you're a student with a, with a teacher with this sort of philosophy, you'll feel like you're doing worse and learning less, and, and you'll rate your teacher worse. And in fact, you may even grow to openly resent them. Yet despite the apparent slowness of our progress, it's actually our brains are being trained to address upcoming impossible decisions. You see, desirable difficulties fortify in us the character that will be required to navigate life's brokenness and challenges with aplomb. I think of James's words, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, don't overhear what I'm saying. I'm not saying God killed Naomi's sons and husbands so she could learn a lesson and grow her character. But it may explain God's apparent slowness in restoration. Why he's taking his sweet time and giving Naomi, a sense of clarity or understanding. God's using the opportunity of this heartbreaking situation to grow her and to reveal to her the nature of his character. To illuminate how he affects his rescue in this broken world. He's inviting Naomi, just as he's inviting us to trust him. So in the midst of your honest dialogues with God, ask not for understanding, but for a sense of God's presence. God will bring understanding, but it will typically be a retrospective, kind of after-the-fact sort of knowing. And finally, our passage ends with the, the positive example of Ruth. She too is is living this out in the midst of of confusing and difficult times. And 
Here's what we read in the next two verses. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. More on him next week. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. The author is hinting in another way that God might be moving, orchestrating his rescue and redemption behind the scenes. And we're not going to get too deep into this this week, but Ruth offers us a model of active faith that presses forward into the extraordinary. Facing starvation, Ruth says, hey, Naomi, let me go to the field. This is a very abrupt statement. It hints there in the Hebrew that almost no time has passed since their arrival in Bethlehem. Ruth is not allowing herself any rest or recuperation after their long journey. She says, in his grace, God has brought us to town right at the barley harvest, and she wants to take full advantage of this very short window where food is plentiful. She says, let me glean among the ears of grain. We're going to talk more on gleaning next week. But God, Ruth knows that God has made a way for the poor, the widow, the immigrant to find sustenance in his land. And she's going to trust God to provide in the way that he said he would. Notice as well that though she's this needy immigrant, though to many she's a suspicious former pagan, Ruth anticipates finding favor in her efforts. Despite the real risks of abuse in the fields or ostracism, she expects to find favor because God will show them chesed. That's who God is. And it gives Ruth the confidence to go out, to, to drive forward, to take an active role in her fate because she knows that God is going to affect his rescue in their lives. So it causes her to press forward in this extraordinary commitment, this extraordinary risk, this extraordinary confidence in God's faithfulness and his rescue. And there's a passage in Philippians that just really sums up Ruth's trusting and active faith. We see this in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, shining as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. These two women, Ruth and Naomi, they invite us into a real relationship with God. They say, talk with him this honest openness with authenticity of how you're actually feeling, God welcomes that sort of conversation. It's exactly what he desires. And if we talk things out with the Lord in prayer, it'll actually start to bring to life those narratives, those stories under which we are living. And it gives God the opportunity to to sometimes reveal where that story has gotten skewed 
where you're living under a lie, and it gives him space to speak his story, to, to untwist our perspective, to learn what he says about us. And those sorts of prayers, they might not instantly bring clarity or understanding in the moment, but hopefully they will train us to cultivate that trust and that dependence upon God. And it will keep us pressing forward on the journey where God is going to affect our long-term development. He's going to grow our character. He's going to shape us into his people of chesed, right? That his people of blessing out in the world. So I'm going to invite the worship team forward. And I can think of no way, better way to kind of conclude this message than to give you a chance to have your own honest dialogue with God. So Janelle and Cal are going to lead us, but don't necessarily even worry about singing along with them. I want you to spend some time hashing things out with your Heavenly Father. Vent, share your emotions, put into words your feelings, but also leave space for Him to speak. Let Him illuminate how He's been moving in the midst of your life's brokenness and mess. Let's cultivate our relationship with Him and let's lean upon Him in trust. So to kick off your dialogues with the Lord, let me pray. God, you are a God who hears as well as speaks. Because of Jesus, you have invited us to come boldly before the throne of grace and find help in times of need. We are not worthy to rant and rave and to talk to you in our raw honesty, our raw brokenness, God, if it were not for the fact that Jesus made a way for us to be called your kids, for us to call you Father. But with that way open, with grace available to us, we come to you with just the realness of our lives. Give us the courage to voice what's really going on to you. Give us the ears to hear your voice, your word, your story spoken back over us. God, we surrender clarity to you. Instead, we focus on growing our trust. For you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. Be with this congregation as they speak with you. In Jesus' name, amen.